Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. piece that the choir sang fits in somewhat with the themes we're looking at this morning, and even next Lord's Day, God willing, as we continue our study in this epistle, we come to the final chapter, so we should get finished before the end of the year. Lord willing, of course. But I want us to read the opening 11 verses of this chapter. We'll not deal with all of them. My plan is to deal with the opening five verses this morning. And, but it's really one part of a two-part message that deals with the opening 11 verses under the title, The Day of the Lord, because that's the little phrase we have in verse 2 that really much of what is dealt with here revolves around. So, let us hear the Word of God from verse 1 of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. This is the inerrant Word of God. Maybe have ears to hear, and hearts that are grateful for the Word that is before us. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light. And the children of the day, we are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation." For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Amen. Thank the Lord for his word. Let us pray. Let's all still our hearts in prayer. Lord, We have frequent reminders of the brevity of life and the suddenness of how things can change. We felt that last Lord's Day, and we feel it again this Lord's Day. We do pray that Thou wilt give much grace to those that mourn, even presently in this place. We ask, Lord, even as we consider this passage, it may be helpful to us all in light of eternity. Minister to Pam, be with her mother, 
or sisters. Give much grace to them in these days. And do glorify thy name come Wednesday and everything that revolves around the funeral and the family coming together. Lord, none of us know what a day may bring forth. We pray that every one of us would be ready. Like Robert Murray McShane, we pray that we would all look for with anticipation that day when we will love Thee with unsinning hearts. Until then, teach us, O God, just how much we owe and help us to live appropriately in light of the cross and the redemptive love of our Lord Jesus. Fill us with Thy Spirit. Help us now. Guide us through the Word. Give much of a sense of Thy presence and accomplish Thy purpose through the preached Word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain questions that pervade the mind of men in every generation. And it's no different 2,000 years ago as it is even today. Two such questions include what happens to people after they die and how will the world end? Although those to whom Paul was writing had been instructed in the gospel, derivatives of those questions were in their minds back then just as they may be in the minds of people today. Paul's response at the end of chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 is really answering the question, What happens to believers after they die, especially before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And in light of the fact that they have passed and have not seen the Lord come, what what happens with them? And we've dealt with that already. And in chapter 5, in the opening verses, Paul answers really the question that may have been asked, what's going to happen at the return of Christ? What's going to unfold at that great event? We might say that one deals with death while the other deals with judgment. Or perhaps more specifically, one deals with what happens to the dead at Christ's return, and the other deals with what happens to the living at Christ's return. Although chapter 5 continues around the theme of the Lord's return, there's a different focus. And as we looked at the end of chapter 4 last time we were here, And I didn't want to get bogged down in various details and get neck deep in all the controversy that surrounds that passage with notions of alternative views. I didn't want to miss the thrust and the main emphasis of the passage, which is to to comfort, to comfort believers who were sorrowing and, and struggling over the natural feelings over what happens with those that have passed on, especially those of our loved ones who trusted in Christ. And their concern was a very sensitive one, and and Paul is pastorally encouraging them. He's not laying out a foundation for argumentation in relation to the Lord's return. And while we may turn to it and certainly establish certain things from it, that's not the focus, and I didn't want to miss the focus of the apostle. And really, the same goes for chapter 5 as well. I don't want to get bogged down. And, And again, there are different perspectives in relation to the Lord's return. Perhaps, crucially, really, where we might be very different from some others, particularly in in this area, where they would see a two-stage return 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't. We don't see that. We see a unified event. We see the Lord coming once and everything that has been really appointed all coming together at that time. And again, there's variations within that. Even those that believe that the Lord returns once, there's, there's, there's differences even in this room in relation to those views. But again, it's not my purpose to get bogged down in all of that. I, I, I know there are dear brethren who vary differently in relation to that, and, and we need to be very careful that we're, we're not casting aside legitimate views and, and, and people who are honestly seeking to wrestle with Scripture and understand exactly what happens at the great event of the Lord's second advent. But again, there, there's a focus here. That, that Paul is pastoring the people. He is, he is encouraging their hearts. He is, he is writing to address legitimate concerns and to help them understand exactly how to think as we come to chapter 5 about the judgment about the day of the Lord, about the time that will unfold inevitably and will come, most certainly just as His first coming came, most certainly. Again, I, I just don't want to get bogged down, and I want to deal with, as I've said, the Lord, the day of the Lord, and that really is the overseeing heading for this week and, God willing, next week as we look at these opening 11 verses. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of the day of the Lord. What, what, what do you think about? Most people think about judgment. And they focus in on that. And certainly, even from the passage we are leading with, we see that judgment is relevant and is there. But there's more to it than that. And so as we begin looking at the day of the Lord, we begin with the significance of it. The significance of the day of the Lord. And here, we, before we get to our text, we want to understand exactly what Scripture teaches us in relation to this. Now, this is huge. It is expansive. If you go through the Old Testament Scriptures looking for the day of the Lord, you will have a fairly lengthy study just going through the various passages. But I want to look at it with you momentarily here this morning and give you some insight and make a particular point in relation to this that I think will be helpful for our study. Theologian Meredith Klein noted that the day of the Lord finds its beginning Right back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, which to bring to your memory again, reads, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, it doesn't say the day of the Lord there, but there are, there are themes, there are truths that are there in the arrival of the Son of God, and that's who it is. It's a revelation of the Son of God in the garden coming in response to the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And he arrives on the scene and he comes and there's a sound and they, he, they can hear him there in the garden. They hear the voice of the Lord God. And this, this parallels with the, the final coming of the Lord and there will be sounds, there will be the trump of God and all of this. And he, he argues through this point. By suggesting that it begins right there, I think Klein touches on something that I read in Herman Ritterboss where he said, quote, The day of the Lord signifies both redemption and judgment. It signifies both redemption and judgment. And that's what I want us to see. That it's not exclusively about judgment. But the day of the Lord also has this other uh, contrasting aspect that it deals with redemption as well. The arrival of the Son of God in the Garden of Eden signified both redemption and judgment. 
He came because of sin in response to his word that sin would bring death. But there was in his arrival mercy for those that would accept the ground of reconciliation. And we know the picture then that is painted following where there is the taking of the animals and the skins that are placed upon Adam and Eve, indicating to them that by blood atonement they would have their sins covered. That by the shedding of blood there would be remission. By the shedding of blood there would be reconciliation with God. And Adam's response to this, of course, is to call his wife Eve, for she is the mother of all living. Giving an indication of his faith. His faith in what God had promised, what God had indicated through that sign. So, so as the Lord came to address the fact that sin had occurred and, and to fulfill the fact that, yes, you have sinned, death will come. But there's not just the judgment. There is redemption. There is salvation in the message that the Lord brings. These two aspects are born in a number of the day of the Lord passages that you read. And again, when you go through the passages, if you do so, you will find that there is a heavy emphasis on judgment, localized judgment in relation to what the prophets were dealing with and who they were ministering to at the certain times in which they lived. But even in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, you can see a an emphasis of, of, of the judgment when it says, The day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. So in terms of its judgment, it is specific to a certain group of people, those that are proud and lofty. When you come to Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 1 verse 15, it says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. So you see the sense of judgment. But you come into chapter 2, and I'll read for you from chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. So even in this, this pronouncement of the day of the Lord, there is a message of mercy, and there's a call to the people to repent and turn from their sins. And in fact, this, this is borne out then again when you, when you come to Joel's prophecy as we dealt with last Lord's Day, and I'll not go over it again, but the quoting of Peter from Joel chapter 2 where he indicates again that this is that which the prophet spoke of and it's fulfilled. And in the midst of it, in the midst of, of the imagery of judgment and condemnation, and then there's the, the, that, that, that quotation that those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, you know that most familiarly from, from Romans chapter 10. But Paul is quoting from Joel chapter 2. And it is mentioned again in Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching on that great event at the day of Pentecost. Those that call on the Lord shall be saved. They'll be saved from this, this final judgment of the Lord. There is mercy in the midst of judgment. Even in Malachi's prophecy, in chapter 4, it deals with Elijah Verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the children of the, 
uh, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Again, there's mercy in the midst of judgment right there. In its introduction to the prophecy of Zephaniah, the Reformation Heritage Study Bible says, The day of the Lord designates those epochal interventions of God into time to accomplish His purpose of judgment against sinners or of blessing for His people. The Old Testament shows that there were multiple days of the Lord, all of which pointed to and were typical, that is, picture prophecies, of the final day that marks the consummation of time, the final judgment of sinners, and the complete salvation of saints at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. So, I'm dealing with this. The significance of the day of the Lord, understanding that it is not exclusively judgment. It's not judgment without any sense of mercy. There's no mercy toward those that die in unbelief. But there is the fact that as the Lord comes back, as He returns, it is also to bring a complete and final salvation to those that believe. To those of us then that are children of the day, those of us redeemed by the precious blood, those of us that are called into a relationship with God through Christ, the day of the Lord is a day that we look for, is a day we pray for. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We, we look for, we cry, we pray that the Lord will return. Now, maybe you feel conflicted when you pray that way. Conflicted because there are some in your family and in your acquaintance that are not saved. And yet we have the example of Scripture. Come, Lord. This is the desire of the church. We want Him to return. We don't want sin to continue. We don't desire the continual blasphemy against the Lord, the rebellion of men. God's people long for a King who will reign in perfect righteousness over all things and will execute His reign in perfect equity. We don't enjoy this world. And so we long for the Lord to return. So that's the significance of the day of the Lord. And I'm just touching on some things and shaping because when you come to chapter 5 and we look at it, you will see the contrast between believers and unbelievers. Those of the darkness, those of the day. You, you see that there. And, and the reason why that contrast exists is because there is this dual sense of purpose in the day of the Lord. It is for judgment against sin and it is for the complete and full redemption of the people of God who are looking to Christ as their Savior. Secondly, note with me the suddenness of it. And here we come to our text and begin to look at what Paul writes in relation to the suddenness of the day of the Lord. Let's read the opening four verses again. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. So when is it going to happen? One might argue that's the best way to prepare. If you know when something's going to happen, then you can prepare. 
We live our lives like this all the time. Give me a deadline. I need a deadline. Give me a time. I need to know when that essay is due in. Don't leave it kind of hanging there in the ether. I need the deadline. And we like timelines. We need to, to know specifically when we need to be ready for something. And we don't appreciate being kind of having our hands laid upon suddenly, uh, even in relation to some of the ladies have maybe received an email in relation to a hospitality program. And part of that is really to facilitate the great dread that most women have, or most who are hospitable and want to have people in the home, the greatest dread they have is to be found not prepared. To, to have someone land in and to not have anything for them. They don't mind making meals. They don't mind having people in their home, generally speaking. But their, their great concern is, well, I, I just don't, I'm just not ready. I don't have anything for them. And, and by having the program, and I, I trust that many of you will kind of respond to that and get involved because many hands make light work. But you can prepare ahead of time. You can know that, that should I be called upon, I'm ready because this is my day. This is my week, as it were. We don't like to be caught unawares. And so again, the, the question was arising in the church. When, when will these things take place? And what Paul does is quote the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. You remember back in Acts chapter 1, just before the Lord ascended, that the disciples asked a question in Acts 1 verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. And here Paul quotes the same thing. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Now why does he say ye have no need that I write unto you in relation to this? Well, he says in verse 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. That is to say, I've told you already. We've dealt with these things and you know what you need to know. In fact, you know it perfectly. That's the word that's used. Perfectly. In fact, it's the same word that Luke uses at the beginning of his gospel, Luke chapter 1, when he says that it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. So Luke was able to write the gospel because he had a very clear and precise understanding of what took place in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why he was qualified, in part, to write the gospel. Well, Paul says, you have received the same instruction in relation to the day of the Lord. Yourselves know perfectly, verse 2, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. So what do they know perfectly? Well, they know that the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And again, they had heard this term before. This was not Paul coming up with a new term. I believe he said he used this term when he was there, when he was instructing them in the weeks that he spent time in that city. And he was not inventing it himself. In Matthew chapter 24, where the Lord gives us all of it, discourse. And again, just to delay the context of Matthew 24 and 25, remember it was in response to what the disciples asked again. Verse 3 of Matthew 24, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Same questions arising from the disciples. 
And the Lord then proceeds to deal with it in Matthew 24 and 25. And so, in Matthew 24, verse 36, we read, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So there's establishing a fact. No one knows when. And Paul, no doubt, iterated this very clearly. And you go then to verse 42 of Matthew 24. He says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come, but know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. And there you have a parallel again with the arrival of the Son of God with a thief that is not expected. Thieves don't tend to tell you ahead of time that they're going to come and be at your property. That really would defeat the purpose, I would imagine, unless they're unusually skillful. That's not the way it normally goes. And the Lord likens it. He said this is, this is the pattern. This is, this is going to be the experience. That when I arrive, it will be with such suddenness that men will not have been expecting it. And while men may pry into the question when, he makes it clear. That day and hour knoweth no man. And it amazes me. It amazes me to talk even recently with our brother Dr. Allison and ministering in Pennsylvania and, the, and, and those caught under the hard camping. And, and he's not new. I mean, that, that, that this idea, this ongoing, continual desire to know exactly when the Lord will come. You can go online and you can go to the Rapture Index. And the Raptor Index has a criteria, 45 different criteria. And each of those 45 criteria are numbered or, or kind of ranked between 1 and 5. And 5 is the max. And once you get to, uh, like, the all, when they're all 5, then the Lord is definitely just, like, definitely round. So I think we're at 180-something some, 180 presently, so I don't do the math. We're not too far away from filling all of the criteria and so on. But this is the minds of people. I mean, what way is this to, to how, do you, how do you categorize one to five with wards and rumors of wards? I mean, what are you, what are you comparing it against? Well, what, this, this is the mind of men. And, and they go deeper and they go further and they begin to give dates and they begin to argue and, and people get caught up in this. 2,000 years ago, the question from the disciples, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? He gives the signs. And then you have the question Again, just before he ascends, is, is, is it not time, Lord? When are you going to do this? And it is not for you to know the times of the seasons. And then as Paul plants churches, the same question arises. Of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you for yourselves. Know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And again, he's drawing from the language of the Lord. Paul, therefore, in his teaching and establishing of Christian churches, he went through the Olivet Discourse. He taught them the basic instruction that was taught by the Lord Jesus in relation to his second advent. And so these terms were familiar to them. They knew these things, were well aware of them. And the Lord had warned that it would be sudden, that it will catch people unawares, and Paul taught the same you come to verse 3. For when they shall say, 
peace and safety. And of course, this is the ungodly, those that are, those that are not looking for the Lord's return. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And the suddenness is impressed even more here in this passage. Again, peace and safety. Where, where's Paul getting that? Where is, why is he saying, when they shall say peace and safety? This is Paul basically drawing again, because the verses that we read in Matthew 24, in the middle of when he says that the Lord will come in an hour you know not, in, 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 in the middle of all that, we have this, the Lord driving home the point that as in the days of nowhere, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. They're eating and drinking and giving in marriage. In other words, the peace and safety is the eating and drinking and giving in marriage. It's a sense of, of security. There's peace and safety and tranquility. And so let's eat and drink and marry and give them. Let's go through life and enjoy all the privileges of life and not think about the Lord's return. And this is, this is the mentality of men. This is how they are living. This is how people perhaps even in this church building are living right now. With the thought that they continue on in their daily activities doing what they do. Unregenerate. With no thought of the suddenness of Christ's certain return. Peace and safety. Peace and safety. Just live life. That's what they're saying. Just live life. Do what is right in your own eyes. Live according to your own desires. Fulfill your dreams. Prioritize your own heart and feelings. This is the mantra of the day. This was the mantra of Noah's day. There's the man, the preacher of righteousness, going around declaring the word 120 years, and no one listens. And some perhaps old enough to recall, I remember when he started this. Noah's been going on about this for over 100 years now. He's crazy. Don't listen to him. And this is, this is the mentality of today. There's the church still declaring the Lord will return and the, Lord, the Lord's long-suffering is being turned into an argument not to believe. Note what Paul writes. Look at it. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not saved, look at the Bible. Look at the Word of God. I trust you have it in front of you. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Then. When everyone is at a point of thinking that everything is fine, there's no possibility that things will change. A sense of security established by the present circumstances. Life has never been as good as it is presently. And there may be the political aspect that will play into this. A period of tremendous peace and prosperity. 
And everything seems to be good no matter where you look. No matter what way you turn. No matter what nation you look at. There's just prosperity on every hand. Peace and safety everywhere you turn. Right when man is at his most exalted state. When he thinks himself to be more than he truly is. Then sudden destruction. Then, sudden destruction. It will come suddenly. I'm tempted to say that's the most frightening thing about it, but it's not. It's not the fact that it will come suddenly that's most frightening. It's what happens. It's the condition of the heart when it occurs. Beloved, let the sense of suddenness that comes forth from this language shape how we think and live in this world. We'll get to that, certainly next week more so, because the application comes from verse 6 very directly to the Lord's people. But let us just think about it even now. now. Let us not move away. Let us not lull ourselves into thinking that everything, that we can just can breeze through into eternity. The Lord will come. He will come suddenly. And that suddenness will bring destruction upon those that are not ready. I can't even begin to imagine what it will be like or what the Lord will permit it to be like for those that are found wanting. I mean, we have some, some idea when you have the, 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 the five wise and five foolish virgins. You have them all there slumbering and then the bridegroom cometh and there's some without the oil and they go try to get ready in time but it's too late. When he comes, it is sudden. It is sudden. There's no stopping it. There's no hindering it. And that's the emphasis as he carries on and a woman that begins to labor, you're not going to stop that birth. That child is coming. They will not escape. That's his point. There's no getting away from it. There's no running from it. There's no avoiding it. This is going to happen. And again, you, you say, well, it seems like an awful long time. Well, it felt like an awful long time prior to the Lord's first coming. And centuries, centuries, centuries pass and prophets are looking toward the day and speaking of the day and indicating the day and, and the anticipation of the day and their whole worship pointing to the arrival of the day. All, all of this, all of this is the prospect of it, but, but how easily it is to slip into a period of thinking, not in my day, not my time, not my generation, not to me. Or to begin to dismiss it altogether. To act as if this will not happen and unfold exactly as the Lord has said. If that is where your mind is this morning, you need to go back. You need to go back and look at Scripture itself. You need to go through the Old Testament. You need to highlight the prophecies. You need to see the significance of that which was prophetically declared coming to pass with such precision that it should frighten anyone who should deny that God will fulfill His Word, whatever He has said. It will come to pass as He has said. We may not have it, fully clear, clear in our minds as to the particulars. 
nor did those prior to the Lord's first coming. They didn't have all the particulars precisely correct, and there was much study that was done. But there are things that really you only begin to see after the events unfold. And that will be the case with the Lord's return. Isaiah 53 is a whole lot clearer after the fact. And so it will be with the Lord's second coming. They shall not escape. You will not escape. Your family name, your church attendance, your presence on a membership roll, your baptism, your Bible reading, your good works, none of this will do. You need to be children of the light. You need to truly know the Lord. All of this, of course, makes sense. That is, the judgment and mercy of the day of the Lord all makes sense in light of the cross. You may read this and you, you may wonder, well, well, why is there such destruction? Why is it so swift and sudden? And why, when there's questions that we may not be able to answer? But in terms of understanding the judgment of God as well as the mercy of the Lord, it is at the cross where we grasp it. The day of the Lord will be both a day of judgment and a day of mercy. But that's what the cross is in itself. It's at the cross we understand this, 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 this whole sense of, of judgment being poured out and yet mercy existing in the midst of it. It's there we see that, that God will not overlook sin. It doesn't matter upon whom it is. There is His only beloved Son made sin for us. And such is the character of God there cannot be. There's an inflexibility in relation to what can be done. Judgment must be poured out. Sin is on the Son of God. It matters not who it is in this case. Sin is there. Sin must be judged. And so it is. At the same time, we see mercy because in the midst of it, there is provision for those that believe. For those that rest in Christ. The day of the Lord is a frightening event. The things that will unfold on that occasion are beyond our full comprehension. And we will see both the judgment of God poured out. There will be the great white throne. There will be an absolute, perfect justice. An inflexibility in how the Lord deals with men. And the only hope is to be in Christ. To quote Jeremiah, How wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? How will it be for you? Every so often there are reminders of just how brief life can be and how sudden it can come to an end. I stood here last week and made 
reference to my uncle, the unexpected nature of his death. It came far more suddenly than anyone expected. Our sister Pam's father, though an aged man, it came very suddenly in the end. In these ways, God speaks and reminds us all that eternity looms for every one of us. We have to be ready. What a frightening thing to hear hundreds of sermons and not be ready. If I can summarize this suddenness, very simply, Paul teaches in these opening four verses about the Lord's return, but he doesn't time it. He puts an emphasis on theology rather than chronology, and he focuses on doctrine, not dates. It's the truth. It's what we know that matters, and we live in light of that, whether the Lord Returns in our time or tarries. There should not be a sense in which we evaluate the time. Okay, so what if we knew the time? Would it change how we live? That's often what deadlines do. (laughs) It's why we have something called procrastination. Because if it seems far away, if it seems like it's way in the distance then we're inclined to not prepare ourselves, not be ready. And the Lord, in His purposes, He has hidden the precise timing because He knows the nature of men. He knows the character of men, and it is best to leave it there. And perhaps there are many other reasons unrevealed to us as to why this is hidden from us. But the fact remains not knowing ought to make us live in light of it daily and to be very, very concerned when we exhibit a life that looks like we're not ready. When we're living like the world, peace and safety. Ye, brethren, are not in darkness. In other words, it's not that you have the light to understand exactly when. But you're in the light. In other words, it won't be as sudden to you. It won't be as, it will be just as sudden, but it won't be as surprising to you. You have been expecting the arrival. It won't come to you then or overtake you as a thief. Again, the whole point here is not to compare the Lord like a thief, but it's the imagery he gives in Matthew 24 to, to illustrate the sense of the arrival of someone who is not expected. But what we're waiting for, we don't know when. But as we shall see next week, there is a watchfulness that is therefore appointed to us because we know that the Lord is coming. Then we have, thirdly, the separation of it, the separation of the day of the Lord. And there's a couple of things I want us to note here. First, the separation, the separation due to spiritual adoption. Look at verse 5. You're all the children of light 
and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. We are all the children of the light. The sons of the light, it could be translated. Indicates our adoption. A spiritual adoption that those in the church, those trusting Christ, know an adoption. A real adoption into the family of God. Theologian John Murray says of the doctrine of adoption, quote, We would not dare to conceive of such grace, far less to claim it apart from God's own revelation and assurance. It staggers imagination because of its immense condescension and love. It staggers imagination. Adoption. Hear all the children of light. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. What makes the difference? Who is it that is awaiting the Lord's return without the fear of judgment upon them? It is the children, those that are adopted into the family of God. And in Romans 8, Paul deals with this doctrine of adoption. I just want to skim through a few verses here and make a few points for the encouragement of your heart. Child of God, be encouraged. Romans 8, look at verse 15. We'll read through verse 17. Romans 8, verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Here Paul hones in upon this wonderful experience, privilege, position of the people of God as being adopted into the family of God. Now, listen. This, this as Murray put it, it staggers imagination. We should struggle to comprehend our adoption into the family of God. It shouldn't be easy for us just to think, hey, Jesus died for me, and I'm in the family of God. It should cause us to just stop and think, what kind of condescension is this? To save me from my sins. That beggar's belief. For Christ to pay the penalty for me, that stuns the humble heart. But to take it further... To try and grapple with God's willingness, yea, God's desire to take those redeemed and place them in His family, to make them His own children, to adopt them. This is a very poor illustration, but think of it this way. How much easier it is to hand out a few dollars or to help in some temporary way compared with actually adopting a child into your family. And this is the degree of God's love. It's not just a temporary help. It's not even something that will extend into eternity. Your sins are forgiven and, and there you are, kind of disconnected, but you're saved. 
You're brought in. You are enveloped in the love of God permanently by being one of His children. And when you go through these verses, there's a few things just to note really quickly. If you take a note of them, you meditate on them and try to develop them in your own mind and heart. First, it's a position of safety. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. There's no fear. There's safety. A spirit of adoption brought into the family. There's no fear there. There's no concern as to the present or the future. You are a child of God. You belong to Him. Therefore, there's no fear. There's no sense of being insecure. It's a position of safety. It's also a position of familiarity. We're told whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father. That's familiarity. It's not God at a distance. It's God right there. God condescending to that most intimate relationship. Adoption, beloved, is the doctrine whereby we understand the fuller extent of the love of God. That His love set upon us brings us right in as close as it is possible to be. In His family. And we have that sense of familiarity. It is a position of certainty. Verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Have you had that? Does the Lord speak to your heart? You may go through your wavering moments. I know there are some here, they do. And you lament them. But there has been and there ought to be the experience, the times where the Lord draws near The time is where through His Word, by His Spirit, even sometimes, I remember one saint expressing his own experience of this a couple of days after his conversion. That was while he was singing a hymn. He was singing just a couple of days after his conversion. And as he was singing, he had the first real sense and experience. He was the Lord's that he belonged to him, that what happened a couple of days prior was not just a prayer and an exercise of his own will, but that God had taken him in, saved his soul, made him his own. And it was a position of partiality. Verse 17, And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is partiality. There's a distinction A clear distinction between those in Christ and those that are not. They're children. And since they are children, they are heirs. You see the the logic following? God saves, God redeems, God brings into the family, and therefore there are privileges. There's partiality expressed, as you expect within families. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Separation due to spiritual adoption have you been adopted? Have you? Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Can I say this morning, ye are all the children of light. Can I say that? Can I? Ye are all the children of light. Would to God I could say it. Would to God I could look down upon every one of your faces and know absolutely as much as it's possible for any man to know that you're all the children of light, but I, I do not have that confidence. What matters is not my confidence, 
what the Lord sees in your heart. Does Jesus look in upon this congregation and say, you're all the children of light? Because of separation, not only due to spiritual adoption, but also spiritual attributes. Children of light. This is an attribute of those that belong to the Lord. They are children of light. They have received light, wonderful light. The day has dawned upon their hearts. Salvation has entered in. The light of the world has taken place within their hearts. And so they are children of light, first because they have a spiritual knowledge of God. They know God. They know God. They actually know God. They have this light and light that comes and is, is, is expressed in terms of knowledge, knowing God. Do you know God? Does your life reflect that you know God? But believers are not only children of light because they have a spiritual knowledge of God, but they are children of light because they have spiritual life from God. Spiritual life from God. Life comes in, death goes out, and life dominates. Life takes over. He who is the light of the world that reigns upon the throne of the heart of every child of God takes control and begins to express his own light through them so that it may be said of them, ye are the light of the world, Matthew 5. I think it's verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. And so you do works and you show that light. And next Lord's Day we'll get to more of that and look at it a little more. But in closing, living to see the Lord's return was a possibility for Paul, but not a certainty. It was possible that the Lord might return in his day and generation, but it was not a certainty. And so it remains to this day. It's a possibility that Christ may come in our generation, but it is not a certainty. But we don't know, and neither should it make a difference. As we shall see next week, it, we have a way that we are called to live. May God help us to live it. And there is coming a day, there is, the day of the Lord will come and it will, it will deal with all injustices. It will remove all suffering, finally, for the people of God. Every tear will be wiped away and everything will be different. But there's just one final thing I want to leave with those who are, are not in Christ. And I read from Revelation chapter 6 because... I just want you to get a grasp of what this day will look like for you that are still rejecting Christ. Revelation 6, verse 15. Just, just listen. Just listen to the Word of God. Would you? The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? You're either a child of light or a child of darkness. 
You're either ready or you're not. You're either saved or unsaved, believer or unbeliever. There's no gray in this. There's no gray. So I ask again, how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? May God have mercy upon us. Let's bow together in prayer. I trust if you're here this morning and you're unconverted that you have been unsettled by God's Word. If you're not unsettled, if you're there, seated in the pew this morning and you don't care one iota, you're, you're no more concerned now than you were when you walked in. You need to be asking yourself why. What's wrong with your heart? Why is it that the frightful truths of God's Word you don't seem to hear? You know, Judas stood there and he heard nearly every sermon the Lord preached, all the warnings, the judgment, speaking about the narrow way and the broad way and the swift destruction that will come upon the ungodly. These things expressed by the Lord spoke more of hell than any other man. These things Judas heard, and Judas did not seem to, it didn't seem to sink in. May that not be the case for you. Lord, we commit thy word to thee. We pray for lasting fruit. We therefore pray against the fowls of the air. And we pray against the spirit of unbelief. That age in which we live where unbelief is rife, we ask, O God, that thou wilt prevail upon thy word, causing it to be effectual in the conversion of sinners and the edifying of saints. Lord, I pray for my own heart. And I pray for all those before me this day. Lord, give us grace to live in light of the reality of the day of the Lord. We, we are so filled to overflowing with benefits of this day, temporal benefits, even in our suffering, how much it has alleviated in comparison to days in the past. Lord, we, we just pray that Thou wilt have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy upon the church. Let us live as children of the light, children of the day. Help us, O God, to reflect the reality of the imminent return of Christ. And we pray that thou wilt be pleased to purify the church and strengthen her and grant that when the Lord comes, he will find faith on the earth. So make us, Lord, to be found among the number. Save the lost. Restore the backslidden. Build up thy people. Do us good this afternoon. Strengthen us in our fellowship. Encourage us as we spend time together and rest and May we return here tonight to, again, hear from Thee and be blessed in the hearing of Thy Word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.